Hi, my name is Laura Kemp, or Laura, I respond to both, and you're listening to the Changing the System podcast. To be fair, we've all known it for a bit. The world can't go on as it is, especially now that we've all experienced something so impactful as a global pandemic. I feel like more than ever are we all reconsidering things we used to take for granted. So I thought, let's ask some of the most interesting people I can come up with how we should change the system they're experts on. Let's see how far we can get, one system at a time. Thank you so much for listening, and let's go! So, in this episode, we are talking about the broken system of fashion. Fast fashion is everywhere, and we're drowning in it. The stats are ridiculous. Global production of clothes has doubled in the last 15 years. It's the second biggest polluter in the world, after oil, and if we don't change the pace of this relentless industry, the planet will be covered in clothes and waste and even more carbon emissions than it already is. And we haven't even mentioned the working conditions of the people that are making our clothes. So what are we doing? Uh, What have we done? But most importantly, what can we do about it? Well, it turns out there's a lot we can do. It's time to introduce our first guest, Lauren Bravo. Uh, Lauren Bravo is a journalist, fashion lover, and expert on the fast fashion economy. You may have come across her numerous articles all over the internet, in The Observer, The Guardian, and for the latter, she did this experiment seeing if she could go one year without buying any new clothes. The answer was yes. Easy peasy. Well, maybe not that easy, but we'll talk about that later. Lauren's book, How to Break Up with Fast Fashion, just came out, and it breaks down what we can do as a collective and as individuals. It's funny, it's practical without being preachy. I met Lauren in the bathroom of our co-working space, where she always wears the most amazing outfits. She is the person who can help us break up with fast fashion. High expectations, but no pressure. Let's have a listen. Lauren Bravo. Yeah. Now it's like how to start, you know? I mean, Lauren... You have been, you know, all over the country recently to mm, promote your book. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, you know, how it's been releasing, you know, your book, How to Break Up with Fast Fashion. It's been really lovely, actually. And you know what? I was really nervous that it wouldn't be. And also because I'm not an expert. And if my book editor were here right now, she would slap me and say, stop being so imposter syndrome But, you know, I knew when I went into writing this that I'm not an academic, I'm not a scientist, um, I'm not even an activist, really, that has spent, you know, years and years kind of researching this and campaigning. I am very much your average Joe lady who, you know, really likes to shop. Fast fashion has many players in the field, and I want to know what they all can do, right? So let's start with... What can retailers do? Wow, I mean, everything. Like, what we need to see retailers doing is not only 
investigating new kind of innovative fabrics. That's a great thing to do if we can work out ways to create clothes with uh, by saving a lot, a lot of water, you know, not using a lot of the chemicals that are used, not kind of incurring the same dye runoffs that are uh, contaminating water supplies mm-hmm. and things like that that is an excellent thing to do but what we really fundamentally need them to do is change their entire business model so that's a big ask like hey Mr Zara if you could just you know cut down the number of clothes you're producing every week by nine tenths or something like that <laughs> would be great I'm aware it sounds like a pipe dream but we really really need to we need to see retailers being brave we need to see them risking their bottom line and I know that's a really hard thing to ask business people to do ever is to deprioritize profits Mm. but we need to see people prepared to make fewer clothes um we need to really sort of put the like slam the brakes on because fashion moves so fast now we went from having four seasons a year to having almost 52 seasons a year same yeah like clothes are dropping every single week we don't need that many clothes we need you know my mum's day she could think about a purchase for a couple of months she could save up for something she could really mull it over and then eventually go and buy that dress or decide not to buy that dress we can't do that because clothes are hitting the high street every week and then they're gone again so we have that real get it or regret it kind of panic so we need retailers to change that model we need them to be prepared to pay garment workers more money Mm -hmm. and perhaps that does mean that the prices of clothes would go up a little bit Mm -hmm. it's not as much as people would think so I think one of the stats I've got in the book is that if you added 24p, I think it is, to the average price of like an £8 t-shirt, say on the high street, that could be enough to actually pay the garment worker who made that t-shirt a living wage. Now, if you went to the average person on the street and asked them, would you pay an extra 24p to know that somebody had been paid a living wage, I think most of us would say yes, wouldn't we? Of course. Of course we would, but we're not offered that opportunity. So I think, yeah, retailers have to trust that shoppers actually do care because I think often they don't grant us the kind of credit right. that we deserve. You know, they yeah. assume that all we want is the cheapest clothes possible at any cost. And I don't think that's true. I really don't. I think most people, if they're informed, actually would happily pay a little bit more money. I'm not saying we will have to be going out and buying 300 pound dresses woven from hemp I or whatever. I never knew that that little money could already make such an impact. Yeah, exactly. It really could. on Because, you know, the scale that we're talking about... And the other kind of thing that people say to me quite a lot, and particularly (laughs) right-wing people who Mm -hmm. just want to fight about it, is, oh, but of course, if we all stop buying fast fashion, then all of those garment workers would be out of a job. And isn't it better that they're in a job than, you know, doing nothing at all? And like, oh my God, that's such an exhausting argument to have. But obviously it's a point. And the thing I would say is, well, I'm not arguing that the garment industry just collapses overnight. I'm not advocating that everyone just suddenly stops buying clothes and that's it. That's not going to happen. I mean, I'm not naive. That's not going to happen. But actually what we what we could end up with is an industry where those garment workers are still gainfully employed, treated much better, working under much better circumstances because the pressure is lifted off those factories to have to churn out clothes at the pace and for the low cost that they do. And they could still be, you know, communities could still be kind of I, I, like, I think pulled out of poverty. I mean, I'm not an expert on this. You know, mm-hmm. other people know far, far more than I do. But there is still the potential for garment work to be kind of a positive impact on communities. Yeah. But it just has to be done in a way that is humane. kind and yeah. humane and fair and, and sustainable. And I think that it, it's possible. <laughs> it really yeah. is possible to do. And I think we will get there. But yeah, I just think retailers need to 
trust consumers when we start to say, look, we don't actually want this. We never asked for it. Yeah. Go on, Lauren. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank Love this. It's time to go on with our next guest who is living this problem hands-on every single day. It's fashion designer David Laporte. David and I met a couple of years ago at the movies, the oldest movie theater in Amsterdam where we were behind the front desk selling tickets, but he was already on his way to becoming one of the most sought-after designers in Holland. I don't even know where to start, but he dressed Rihanna for the Barbados Carnival last year in a pink fluffy feather dress, he dressed Solange for the Met Gala, he opened Fashion Week, and he was the winner of the European Woolmark Prize in 2018. But hey, I didn't just ask David to join the podcast because he's so fabulous. A couple of months ago, he did a TED Talk about sustainable fashion, and he advocated for bringing a couture mindset into our everyday outfits. So there you go, another great participant for this episode. I can't wait to hear from David how he deals with the growing pressure of being sustainable as a designer. I called him up on FaceTime. We got the technology to work. Shout out to you and the editor. Here we go. Yeah, let me know when your computer is fixed up. Yeah, it's fine again. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, when did you become aware of how wasteful fashion your your industry actually is? Now, my industry is really, really wasteful. And, I, you know, I was aware of that I was really... My company and my industry was really wasteful already quite in the beginning. That was also for the reasons for me to uh, to become more a couture brand because I think this form of slow fashion is not so uh, bad for the environment actually uh, you know and I also like to take a bit more time as a person for fashion um, what are some of the conversations that you're having with colleagues or other designers is it something you talk about a lot yeah, I think so. I think nowadays everybody, especially the small brands, is involved with sustainability. If you're not, it's kind of it's kind of weird actually, uh, <laughs> and uh, and you have to. But it's very very hard um, to find uh, good ways because sometimes it, it looks like nothing helps, and you can't change the world in over a year. You know, of fashion it will take years and years to evolve. Yeah, it will take time, but it's it's hard because we we might not have that time. No, it's true. You're right. Yeah, we might not have that time. So I think the one thing that can help if we as consumers start to change, you know, we just have to find yeah. new ways to fill, fulfill, fulfill our need for fashion. <laughs> Are there any exciting new materials uh, you recently discovered? Yeah, the, the, the nice thing is I recently went to the Premier Vision, that's the big fabric fair in Paris. And there are always new, new things happening. Yeah, a lot of the brands are really changing and changing into sustainability. And a lot of brands also want to, uh, fabric brands I'm talking about, um, are also trying new developments. What's nice, just fun is, for example, pineapple leather. I think it's cool. Um, yeah, it's really nice. And, uh, you know, and a lot of fruit. And they can use, like, from pineapples, the, uh, oh my God, the English word is schil. I don't know. Oh, the peel? Uh, yeah. Okay, the peel. I'm sorry for this. Uh, <laughs> so they can use from the pineapple, they can use the peel. So that was really nice. And for example, fish leather is also something really nice. They're using then the fabrics they make from the wood chips. And uh, not, so a lot of things are happening. You're now 
okay, well, that's really interesting. New materials are coming up. It sounds very creative. Uh, it's being talked about. But one of the main issues, according to Lauren, is that these new technologies are often not shared. In her book, she concludes that we need more transparency. Let's ask her about that. Well, speaking of transparency, what also was mind gobbling, bobbling <laughs> to me was um, that even when designers or brands find a sustainable way to make a fabric, mm -hmm. they don't want to share it because it's competitive yeah. to be the only one to know. Yeah, it's so it's so depressing. So I had, um, I won't name them or anything, but there was a brand that approached me a few months ago with a press release about a really exciting new line that they were releasing, which was using a fibre that previously would, would not have biodegraded and they had found a way to make this fibre in a way that performed exactly the same but actually did biodegrade much more quickly and that was really brilliant and so I went back to them and said to the PR like oh this is really great can you tell me what the name of this fibre is that you're using mm -hmm. and they said uh, no actually we, uh, we're not releasing that information to kind of retain our competitive advantage. I think that, is, I think that was the exact phrasing they used. And it just made me want to bang my head against the table because I was like, this is the problem. So I get that you're running a business and of course you kind of want to keep that information to yourself. But ultimately, we don't have time for people to do that. We don't have time for that kind of gameplay. Like no. if you've found a way to create something previously unsustainable and make it eco-friendly, you, you, you're a dick if you don't tell people, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what are you doing? You have to, you've got to make it open source. It is such a shame when brands are sort of making these, these great strides and right. then they're not prepared to actually kind of share that for the greater good. Yeah. yeah. So that's something what brands could do. Then. That's another thing they could yeah. definitely do. Wow. Yeah. I find this fascinating. I wonder what you guys think about brands keeping their sustainable innovation a secret. But of course, there's more going on. Some brands don't just keep secrets, but they're actually deceiving or even lying about how sustainable they are. And sometimes this comes from brands you least expect it from. Lauren can tell us more. Yeah, it was one of the biggest surprises for me when I started researching the book properly was realizing just how many of those kind of premium mid-range brands um, that we would imagine are better quality and we would imagine are more ethically produced are actually not at all. So quite often they are made in the very same factories that the fast fashion brands are producing in. Because the heat has really been on the very cheapest brands, you know, your Primarchs, your Zara's, yeah. Boohoo, Misguided, H&M, etc. Quite a lot of the time, probably actually not Boohoo and Misguided, but quite a lot of the time, those kind of big high street chains are the ones that have had to work the hardest to improve things, to yeah. improve their standards. I feel a bit sad for Primark sometimes. Yeah, so Primark... They were really held up as kind of the poster child for all of fast Everything fashion's that's problems. Bad. Yeah. Everything that's bad about the industry. And actually, look, I'm not, I haven't done my investigations. I'm not, you know, I, I can't kind of speak for Primark. But as far as I know, they have worked really quite hard over the last few years to do better. Uh, if you look at the Transparency Index, if you look at, mm. um, there's a really great website called Good On You that rates a lot of brands. They are actually kind of often scoring a lot higher than brands like Bowdoin, right. Whistles, Warehouse, you know, Ghost, yeah. even, you know, a lot of these brands that we would assume, because we are paying a lot more money for the clothes, exactly. we kind of assume that we're buying peace of mind there. And we're not. And listen to David's crazy example. 
But nowadays, really, really shitty things actually are happening. So basically, their plastic bottle factories are standing next to the yarn fabrics. So basically, they're producing plastic bottles to make yarns from them. So they're recycled. But they're not, of course, not really did recycle them. It's ridiculous, of course. It's such yeah. weird things are happening nowadays because everybody just wants to label and storytell the fact, yeah, look, we are using sustainable yarns. But, you know, it's not so sustainable. Not so sustainable indeed. But do you know what else is not so sustainable? Sustainable fashion lines of big brands, like H&M, for example. Let's hear Lauren out. So it's still difficult because just when you think that brands are listening or changing their policies, like H&M recently, mm -hmm. uh, and you read their websites and their promotion and their marketing, it's so convincing. You almost yeah. think, oh yeah, I can go back to H&M now. Exactly. I but think... what happened there? <gasps> yeah, we're all just waiting for permission, aren't we? It's really tough. So the story with H&M is that if you go and read the sort of resources that are out there to tell us, you know, where to shop, who's the baddie, who's the goodie. H&M will often score quite highly. So the Fashion Revolution Transparency Index, which comes out every year, mm -hmm. which is a really great study that they do across loads and loads of different big brands and mark them on lots of different categories. So you can really kind of trust it. They will consistently have H&M as one of the very highest scoring brands. So, you know, people are not being duped if they kind of believe H&M to be one of the best because that is the information we're being given. The trouble is H&M produce clothes on such a scale and at such a pace that we just can't really ever consider them a sustainable fashion brand while they're still pumping out clothes like that. So the stat that always elicits a bit of a gasp from the audience whenever I say it at events is one that the brilliant journalist and activist Lucy Siegel worked out, which is that it would take H&M about 12 years to recycle the number of clothes that they uh, produce in 48 hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my so, gasp. <gasps> right, exactly. So as soon as you kind of, you hear that, you think, oh, okay, there's the problem. So they can have all the fancy regenerated fibres that they like and they can pour all of their marketing budget into promoting their eco collections and all of the great work that they're doing. And hey, it is great work. I'm not kind of dissing it. I'm glad they're doing it. But while they're still producing the sheer volume of clothes that they do, um, they're never going to be a sustainable brand because they're, they're pumping out more clothes yeah. than any of us can ever actually buy or wear or need. And, you know, someone somewhere is still paying that price. Yeah. You're now tuned in to It is difficult. You didn't buy any new clothes for a whole year last mm -hmm. year, which meant you didn't go to the high street. Only second hand. Only second hand. Yeah. Yeah. How was that for you? It was both harder and easier than I was expecting it to be. So it was definitely tough. Like, you know, shopping has always been my sort of outlet, right? So mm. I shop when I'm happy, when I'm sad, when I'm like angry, when I'm feeling insecure, when I'm hungry, when I'm bored. Like shopping is just one of those reflexes that I have been kind of conditioned to think was the answer to everything mm. basically and I don't think I'm alone there I think no that so will, many so many people. people feel that way it will sound extreme to a lot of other people who maybe don't care about clothes in the same way but I know that there are so many other people and particularly women out there who yeah use shopping like that kind like of a fix yeah. like a fix exactly it's a bit of a crutch so it was so hard to unpick that conditioning and like 
you know, I, for months after I stopped shopping, I still had that urge to kind of nip into shops. Anytime I found myself in the vicinity of like an H&M or a Zara or whatever, I would still like have that feeling deep, deep within me that said, well, you just go in and see what's there. Like you just have to know, even if you're not going to buy it. So that was really hard, like turning off that urge. But actually, I also found that once I just told myself, I don't do that anymore. Like, that's fine. I just, I don't go to the high street. If I feel like I need something in my wardrobe, and I mean, need is a debatable word, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Like, I've I've got a lot of clothes. But if I felt like, you know, there was at one point I wanted like a really simple black roll neck jumper to go with a lot of other things I had. And I just felt like that would be a kind of sensible, useful purchase. Mm -hmm. So I just went to eBay instead and found a vintage one and found a really nice cashmere one that I probably wouldn't have had the spare cash to go and buy a cashmere jumper new right but I could afford one on eBay for like I think 18 pounds or something I paid for it so actually once I discovered there were these other tricks and the second hand really could kind of provide everything I needed it was fine and I found I had so much more time left you know I had like all this spare time I had more spare money I had more spare like headspace because I wasn't just constantly thinking about my next purchase I wasn't like scrolling ASOS on the bus all the time I wasn't constantly having to go to the post office to take my returns back yeah and actually yeah life became a little bit easier more time to breathe and and not think about it exactly so any conclusions from that year? Are you going to stop shopping new altogether or? Mm, yeah, so I'm I'm definitely not going back to the high street. I'm not going back to fast fashion. Um, I mean, hey, once you've written a book about it, like you've pretty much made your bed. I've got to lie in it now. I, could, I couldn't backslide even if I wanted to. Um, but I don't want to because if I'm really honest, the idea of going into Zara just makes me feel exhausted now. Mm. I think having stepped away from it, I've now realized that it, it didn't make me happy. It's me and charity shops. You know, we're a great team. I just, <laughs> I love secondhand. It makes me feel happy. I love kind of thinking about the history that my clothes had before I acquired them. And it's it's quite guilt-free, pretty much. Yeah. You know, if you go to a charity shop, you know that you are supporting a charity. You're keeping those clothes out of landfill. You know, you are um, preventing something new from the high street going into your wardrobe that maybe wouldn't last as long. It's kind of win-win for everybody. Okay, so I get it. Vintage is the answer. Charity shops digging for the treasure. But, oh, I'm just really not good at that. And it stresses me out and it gives me too much stimuli. I confess this to David. You know what? I find it hard because I'm, I hate to go through piles of vintage clothes. In <laughs> it sounds horrible. But <laughs> Me like, too. No, I hate it. <laughs> it's so I stressful. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how for people like me, you know, I just want something, maybe something to be curated or that I can pick instead of have to do all the hard work. Yeah, you're right. Because we're all lazy, basically. Uh, I'm the same. I do just... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> to be straight to the point in Dutch. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I think you just have to figure out a few brands that you know are doing well um, and produce or do at least their very best. And I think if already they're doing their best, that's already 50%, right? Okay, good tip. Uh, I asked Lauren the same. Thank God she didn't judge me. You're now tuned in to Lauren Lessons. 
you know, for every person like me who is a bit of a magpie, who really loves to go to vintage shops and have a proper rummage, there will be another person exactly like you that just finds that overwhelming. It's too tiring. You don't want, you know, you want the hard work kind of done for you and you want to be able to just choose from. That sounds so terrible. No, it doesn't. But like, uh, you know, it is knackering. It is. It's kind of, it's a privilege of time as well. So like, hey, I'm self-employed. I can go to charity shops and have mm. a proper rummage, but not everybody is going to have that time. Um, so yeah, there are so many things that you can do. So there are some really nice websites. There's one called Gather and See and there's one called Know the Origin and they are both brilliant for curating um, a really beautiful collection of sustainable brands. Um, So I would definitely recommend checking those out. Mm. I would also say one of the things I always advise people to do when they want to kind of make this change is curate their social media feeds and their email inbox. Yes. So um, go through and unsubscribe from all of the fashion brands that are pestering you every single day, Mm -hmm. trying to get you to buy stuff because we are all being sold to all the time, even if we don't realise it. And actually, you know, the same with kind of Instagram, like unfollow all of those influences that are making you feel like you have to shop. But at the same time, try and follow some really great slow fashion advocates, maybe some, you know, a couple of sustainable brands whose style you like. And I think that's quite a nice way of, you know, having this stuff reach you rather than having to go out and like rummage. Well, there you go. I can definitely work with that. I'll make sure to uh, make a list of all the shops Lauren mentioned on my website at the show notes. But for now, let's move on from the consumer's perspective to the designer's perspective. What could designers do? Mm. I think designers could, I mean, again, you know, be prepared to work with different fabrics. That's very important. Um, Think about ways of minimizing waste. So one of the kind of exciting developments we are seeing in sustainable fashion is people making clothes with dead stock fabric and with off cuts. Mm. So there will be, you know, in the average kind of um, fashion house, you'll get huge quantities of fabric off cuts or fabric that is maybe ordered in for a collection that doesn't then end up getting made, prototypes, things like that. Loads and loads of waste. So there are lots of exciting ways of using that waste. I think also settling for less than perfection is quite an important thing that designers could learn to do. So getting a little bit less hung up on creating something perfect or perfect in their eyes, because obviously that's massively subjective anyway, and actually being prepared to say, well, maybe the colour will vary slightly in this collection. You know, we're making things with fabric that is pre-existing or maybe fabric that is dyed with natural dyes or whatever it is. And actually saying, well, maybe that means that there will be slight variations in the finish of these garments and that's fine yeah, and no one like cares that. and it we makes like it more it. special exactly it gives it more character so i think that's something that designers you know are starting to do and could do a lot more of i also think that if we're ever going to have a fashion industry that's truly sustainable then it has to be inclusive as well mm-hmm. and i know it's tough because you're kind of asking designers to do two things at once but there's no point in creating beautiful clothes in a sustainable way if they are only available to a very sort of small subset of women. And I mean, literally small. So we talked about what the industry can do, designers can do. Um, What can influencers do? Ooh, one of the most powerful things influencers could do is wear the same clothes again and again and again on their grid. So that is something that we are starting to see happen. And I think, you know, it's a really easy win for influencers is just to yeah post an outfit that you wore last week again because that is called being normal with clothes you know that is how most people use their wardrobes and we all need to have that collective pressure taken off us that says we have to be perpetually buying another outfit looking for another thing 
I would love to see that. I would love to see more influencers using secondhand. I would love to see them, you know, and not even making a big deal out of it. And it doesn't have to be some kind of priceless designer secondhand piece that they mm-hmm. bought from like a Notting Hill Atelier. You know, I would love to see more influencers just going to a charity shop. Yeah. Doing doing their haul. If they're going to kind of carry on doing hauls, do that at a charity mm-hmm. shop. Or, you know, buy things from Depop and eBay. I think that's really important. You're now I wonder how David sees this. A big part of his job is to dress celebrities. Um, so you design a lot for um, celebrities, artists. Do you notice a change in their requests? Do they ask about if it's sustainable? No, not really. They don't ask if this is sustainable. They're just looking for the new thing. And of course, we try to make it sustainable. We recently made a, a dress uh, for an actress that was made of wood chips of uh, wooden tables and stuff like that and they made it into a fabric looked like a silk you know so i try to do it as a brand but uh and if i'm looking into feathers for example then i make sure it's dyed in a proper way and it's done in an organic way the feather so i've really tried my very best as a brand but i find that interesting to hear david because i would expect from those influencers and celebrities to ask from you if it's sustainable but you're actually trying to influence them yeah yeah it's the other way around yeah do you know why because people still they know and they know they know they should change but everybody's like pointing to other directions basically and then of course the shipping of of clothes if beyonce wants a dress and she is in new york right now it has to be flown over period yeah of course yeah yeah and that will never change um i think yeah yeah yeah. there's nothing really you can do about that no that's a difficult topic or Back to Lauren. She has a message for influencers. It's really tough because I get that for a lot of influencers it is a full-time career and I get that relationships with brands are their bread and butter. That's how they make a living. So I'm not expecting them to drop all of those kind of contracts overnight. But I do think influencers taking the time to really think about the brands that they're working with if they're working with brands that are not potentially the most sustainable, then asking the difficult questions. Mm -hmm. Because actually, you know, if we are going to take the career of influencing seriously and, you know, give them credit for doing something as a job, then one of the things that they can be doing is providing a kind of bridge between the average person and the retailers, right? Like that is a function that actually influencers can do really well. Mm -hmm. So if they are sitting in meetings with these brands... I would really love to hear them asking those difficult questions and saying, okay, well, my followers want to know this. Yeah. So can you answer that for me? My followers want to know where was where was this made? My followers want to know why are you using this fabric and not another fabric? Such um, a great influencer's idea as well. Like if someone's listening, like I want yeah. to be the bridge between the retailer and the average customer. Exactly. I would follow them immediately. Totally. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Because I think, you know, you owe your career to all of these people who hang on your every outfit yeah. and like all those pictures and give you that engagement. So the least you can do potentially is listen to them and listen to their kind of concerns and their questions and take those back to the brands. So I think that's kind of a uniquely privileged position to be in. So that's something I'd really love to see influencers doing more of. And yeah, I think maybe, you know, we have seen a big push over the last few years to kind of look a little bit less glossy, a little bit less perfect. We've seen a lot of the whole like... Imperfection. Imperfections are cool, actually. (laughs) I'm just really insecure like everybody else. And, you know, I have a spot and I'm very brave. And (laughs) we've seen a lot of that. So I think I would like to see more of that continuing with 
clothes as well so people right. saying do you know what I'm wearing something that has like a, ho- stain. a stain or a hole yeah. in it or yeah whatever and actually no one cares like I quite often will go to events wearing something that I know for well has like a, a small stain or like a you know I've taken the hem up myself and I've done it really badly <laughs> but I just know that actually no one's looking that closely no one no. really cares and if I point it out to people it just makes it all more relatable and everybody kind of can breathe a sigh of relief and undo their top button and go like, okay, we're all friends here. Like yeah. nobody has to be flawless. I mean, it's such a fine balance, right? Between setting the agenda for something so important without being preachy and making people turn your back against you. And so I think we have to acknowledge that Yeah, you don't change people's habits by making them feel guilty. You've got to meet people where they're at. You've got to speak to them in their own language. And I think one way we avoid being preachy is humour. So, like, uh, quite a lot of people have been really surprised that the book is kind of funny. It's hilarious. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm not (laughs) going to toot my own horn on that because I didn't really think it was that funny when I was writing it, but I have had quite a lot of people say that. And I'm like, why shouldn't it be? Like, this is a really human issue and it's... You know, it's only clothes at the end of the day. And it is quite hilarious that we we attribute so much meaning and so much importance to bits of fabric we put on our bodies to stop us being naked. You know, like, (laughs) I think having a sense of humour definitely helps get through to people. I think, as I was saying earlier, that willingness to hold our hands up and admit that we're not perfect. I think that is a way of really relieving that pressure. Mm. So I think people are kind of relieved when I say like, look, I'm not vegan. I'm not perfect. You know, I still, I still fly. Like I'm trying to cut that down, but like I'm also a part-time travel writer. So I'm having to like balance my income and kind of how I make a living now with trying to do things as, as best I possibly can. So I think as soon as you're honest about that and you admit that stuff, A, it takes away people's power to kind of tear you apart for it. Right. Because if it's like I'm holding my hands up and admitting this stuff then people can't kind of pretend they've caught me out. Right. But also it just means that people realise they don't have to be perfect to join the conversation and that actually a willingness to change and a willingness to learn is all that you need and everything else can come later. You know, so I think that's yeah, I just think that's really important. I also wonder how David deals with collaborations and the grey zones that come with that. I do sometimes do a ready to wear basically and then I'm doing small capsule collections and I'm doing that in that way so it's like I make a collection of available in a, in small uh, limited editions because I think then it doesn't become that you're not overproducing and you really think about it carefully and sometimes I work as a freelance designer for different companies but I never try to work for really fast fashions. Recently, I did a denim company. I did a denim line. And then it was also a sustainable denim line. So also the companies that approach me, they ask me always from a sustainable point of view. But I think the main thing is, you know, the main thing is as a designer that you have to be creative. And if you're sustainable and creative, that's of course would be amazing. It's very difficult to be creative and sustainable at the same time. I think it's a very big challenge for me. But uh, I think that's the main thing. And as long as you have a creative vision, I think that helps. Right. And what's your creative vision then, Daph? Yeah, <laughs> that's always <laughs> the question. Then. Now, I just try to follow my own path. 
because I think a lot of things are happening in the in the world of fashion. If you look too much around you, you always get inspired everywhere. And I think it's very important just to follow your point of view and what you think is good. And not everybody will like it, and that's also fine, you know. Well, you've always been inspired by nature and shape, so I'm sure there are some links you can make with with sustainability there. Yeah, there is actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the nature is one of my biggest inspirations behind a lot of my collections, and um, and also now, for example, we're uh, cleaning the ocean from plastic from the North Sea, um, and we're developing fabrics from them, for example. So from waste from the North Sea, so we're putting it like. Um, from we remove it basically from the water and then we make it into yarns and make it into fabrics so that's how i try to uh, really um, do my very best to help nature a bit at least that's amazing and it also helps with the storytelling because i would love to hear about that Well, what I understand from David is that it's difficult to make a difference on your own especially in fashion where there's so many powers at play but it's definitely clear that he's doing the best that he can. Now, yeah, we're doing our very best and still not everything what I'm doing is sustainable. And I find that some, sometimes very hard because sometimes you just have a creative idea. I'm like, oh my God, I really want to do it. But then you're like, it's not so sustainable. Can I do this? <laughs> right. Can you be honest and say something that you're doing right now that's not sustainable? Uh, yes, uh, one of my uh, main materials that's really uh, representing my brand is not sustainable yet. And I'm trying to get it sustainable, but it's a very hard uh, journey. I'm looking into this already for a year. I'm working on this. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, but you're trying. Yeah, yeah, I really am. Yeah, yeah, I'm really taking yeah. it very serious. Yeah. You're now and with that, it's time to say goodbye to David. I wonder what he's up to next. Because of the coronavirus, many of his gigs have been cancelled. What's on your agenda after quarantine is over? Yeah, it's quite empty. I can tell you that. <laughs> but I'm not going to stress about it. Uh, do you know what? Uh, we will see. I think I'm going to work. I'm, I'm here for two months more. I think I'm just going to sit on my studio and make dresses myself. No seamstress, but I'm going to do it myself. So this is going to be in my schedule. Yeah, it's going to be good for me. <laughs> if you haven't yet, make sure to look him up on Instagram at David Laporte. Another update is that he's been really busy making face masks for healthcare workers during the Corona crisis. What an absolute gem. But before we can wrap up this episode entirely, there's one more issue we need to talk about with Lauren, and that is how sexism is also a driving force in the fast fashion economy. So yeah, so let's talk about, you know, that the whole fashion burden is mainly carried by women. What fast fashion did is sort of democratize clothing and make it so that, yeah, people who didn't have a lot of spare cash could feel like they were participating and they were wearing the same looks as their favourite celebrities or even just as the other people at school, the other people in the office. And of course, on, on a kind of micro level, that is a positive thing. And far be it from me to come along and say that people who feel that Primark or H&M is the only option they can afford are doing something bad and that they should stop mm. and change their habits. Because I think, you know, we've got to punch up on this stuff, right? We've got to talk to the people who actually have the most power to make change and the people who are causing the most problems. And that is, by and large, wealthy people, you yeah. know. But 
on that argument that fast fashion has democratized the kind of clothing industry, we only, when we say that, we only mean the poorest people in this country. And we only really mean a certain type of poor, you know, mm-hmm. or even just kind of cash limited consumer. When we kind of zoom out and look at the global picture, you quickly realize that actually it is predominantly young women who are suffering for those clothes to make those clothes quickly. They're not profiting from it. They're not enjoying fashion. They're not being asked to participate in it. You know, they are just being exploited so that we can go and buy that five pound dress from Boohoo. It's a really, really tricky balance to strike. And it's very hard, you know, to tell anybody who feels like they don't have an awful lot going in life. And hey, like, I I don't have a lot of spare cash and I know how it feels to kind of think, well, look, Houses are impossibly expensive. Travel is impossibly expensive. So many elements of life have gone up and up and up. The one thing that has gone down over the past few decades is clothes. Right. So, of course, people want to, like, treat ourselves. Of course, we want to kind of go to the shops and buy a new outfit to kind of pick ourselves up and make us feel good because it doesn't feel like there are a lot of other avenues available to us. So I get that. But I do think it's about constantly reframing that narrative and remembering where those clothes have come from. Mm -hmm. And clothes can't be... You know, you can't say that they're truly accessible if they are still exploiting some of the world's most vulnerable people. And the crazy thing is that on the other end of the spectrum, women are the main consumers. So I wrote the book very much from a female perspective, very much aimed at women, although I hope that, you know, people of any gender could kind of get a lot from it and enjoy it. But it was definitely aimed at Yeah, at a kind of female market, because let's be honest, we are the ones that are being sold to when it comes to fast fashion. So there was a stat, it's quite an old stat, so it might have changed now, but in the global supply of used clothing, so all the clothes that have been discarded and cast off, there are seven times more women's wear than men's wear. So which sums it up, right? I think that sounds logical. Like we know women on the whole, on average, are buying a lot more clothes than men are, and we are being pushed to buy more clothes, you know, because everything is directed Mm -hmm. at kind of, I call it like retail negging, basically making us feel like shit about ourselves so that we buy more. And so, you know, fast fashion is, it's definitely a feminist issue. And I think it would be really naive to pretend that it isn't because garment workers are predominantly, so 80% of the global garment working industry is women aged 18 to 35. So women are being exploited at both ends of the spectrum, right? So we are we are the ones that are being sold to relentlessly. Yeah. We're the ones being brainwashed. We're the ones being made to feel kind of, you know, less than by the fashion that we, we try and buy. And then at the other end, you've got women being exploited to make those clothes so cheap. So it's definitely... And I'm sure many of the CEOs are men, right? Oh, so only 12.5% of CEOs in the global garment industry are women. Yeah, 80% making the clothes, 12.5% running the show. And doesn't that just say it all? I, I mean, think I just have a goosebump. Yeah, right. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, of course, when you hear stats oh. like that, it does just make you, it kind of puts a fire up you and it makes you go, well, I don't want to give those men my money anymore. I don't yeah. want to give those men in suits my I've money. I've already had a rough morning. Now I really want to punch something. Right. Thank you so much for listening and thank you, Lauren Bravo, for helping make a bit more sense of this complex issue that we know we're all a part of. I wish I could end this episode on a positive note, but to be honest, I'm worried about how slow this industry is changing. The global fashion agenda concludes that 40% of global clothing producers worldwide don't give a shit about becoming more sustainable or more social. 
And even if they do care, it's really hard to make a change. For example, in 2016, 90 clothing companies signed the 2020 Circular Fashion System commitment. But last year, only one-fifth of their goals were reached, and big companies like Nike and Adidas don't even commit to goals. I believe that we need a government intervention. Why don't governments set a production limit of big companies like H&M? And of course, we should all shop more vintage, be more sustainable and spread the message. But it would make so much more sense if that's also in the law. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. If you want to have a look at all the resources I use, go to my website, lauralistenspodcast.com. You'll find out more. Massive thanks to Ewan McAllis for the edit and Ian LeBlue for the music. And if you would like to stay up to date on Changing the System episodes, please subscribe on wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you and speak to you soon. You are now tuned in to Lauralistenspodcast.com.